All right, well, good evening, everybody. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. I'm really excited for this opportunity to get to speak with you. Um, I know there are still a few people coming in, so I just want to make a brief pitch for next Sunday night. Uh, we'll have our spring night of worship right here in the sanctuary. We won't have the doctrine teaching. It'll be a night of worship here at 5 p.m., and it's going to be similar to our previous ones. We'll have the adult choir, we'll have a band, we'll have uh, organ and piano, but we're also going to be joined by all of our children's choirs. So I'm really excited about that. We're going to do a few songs all together with all the kids, all the adults, some congregational songs with them. So they've been working really hard on that, and so we'd love to have you join us next Sunday night right here at 5 p.m. instead of 4 for our spring night of worship with the adult choir, with the children's choirs, with congregational singing. It'll be a really wonderful time, and so we hope you'll be able to join us for that. Um, tonight is about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot to cover in just an hour, so I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we can get started. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Holy Spirit, as we gather tonight to reflect on you, I pray that you would bless me with wisdom and with eloquence, that I might communicate clearly and accurately the biblical truth of who you are. I thank you for the wisdom that you have imparted to so many theologians and pastors over the years, and for the blessing that they have been to me in preparing these thoughts. If there are any errors in my outline, I pray that you would cause me to pass over them. If I've left anything out, please bring it to my mind. But above all, I pray that you would prepare fertile soil in all of our hearts, that we would all meekly receive the wisdom and truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is a really great topic for us to be talking about, and I'm particularly excited that I was given this topic, because I, before I even knew we were going to do this series, I'd spent the last year really studying the Holy Spirit in depth. About a year ago, I felt like the Lord kind of convicted me of the fact that I didn't really know anything about the Holy Spirit. I'd grown up in church my whole life. I knew a lot of things about the Father and about the Son, about the Bible, but I really didn't know very much about the Holy Spirit, and I realized that that was an issue. So I spent uh, a lot of the past year really studying the Holy Spirit in depth and reading what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? What did the church fathers say? What did the medieval Roman Catholics say? What did the Puritans say? What do Baptists today say? What do Charismatics and Pentecostals say? What's everyone saying about the Holy Spirit and how does it align with Scripture? And so I'm really excited to get to share some of that with you all tonight. Um, starting why studying the Holy Spirit is important, like I said, the Spirit is often misunderstood or mischaracterized in our Christian context today. There are a lot of people saying a lot of things about the Holy Spirit. Some of it's great, some of it's true and biblical, some of it's not. So we want to be able to say, what does the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit, and how can we test things that we hear from other people about the Holy Spirit? If we neglect the doctrine of the Spirit, we're neglecting a third of who God is. So if we want to talk about knowing God, about having a relationship with God, but we're just going to write off the Trinity, then we're missing out on a lot of the depth and richness of who God is and what he does in our lives. Um, so if we want to truly know God, we should seek to understand all three persons of the Trinity, not just the Father and the Son. And finally, and this is really important to me personally, an awareness of the Spirit's work in our lives should give us comfort in seasons of doubt. So when we have times of doubt, when we question our faith, when we start to ask ourselves, am I even really saved? I'm still so sinful. Am I really a Christian? Did I really truly accept Christ? Um, one of the ways that we can encourage ourselves and that we can find insurance and we can remind ourselves that we're held by Christ, that we are sealed for salvation by the Spirit, that we are the beloved children of God, is when we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because if the Spirit is working in our lives, then that means that we are held secure in Christ. But that only works for assurance if we can accurately identify what is and what isn't the work of the Holy Spirit. And I could not. I knew what other people said about the Holy Spirit, but I couldn't relate to that. You know, I wasn't speaking in tongues. I wasn't giving prophecies. I wasn't receiving visions. I wasn't having these super emotional experiences in the worship service. And so I started to wonder, do I even have the Holy Spirit? I, I, I can't point to any point in my life when I feel like I've experienced the Holy Spirit. And it's not because the Spirit hadn't been working, it's just because I was blind to it. So that's why it's important for us to have a robust understanding of all the ways that the Spirit works in our life. Not just the, the flashy, supernatural things, but also the, the mundane, routine, everyday ways that the Spirit is a consistent presence in our life as Christians. So I'm going to be drawing primarily from three works on the Holy Spirit here. I'd like to go ahead and introduce them so I don't have to stop when we go. The first is a modern 
work on the Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish theologian. It's a very creative title. It's called The Holy Spirit. Um, it's a really good book, though, just a general overview of what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the second work is a little bit older. John Owen is a Puritan theologian, and he wrote what many consider to be the greatest work on the Holy Spirit. It's called Pneumatologia, which I think is Latin and roughly translates to the study of the Holy Spirit. So another really creative title from John Owen there, but it's a good, just really in-depth, deep work about the Holy Spirit. And then the last one uh, is one of the church fathers. The early church argued a lot about the Trinity and about the Holy Spirit, and so there's a lot of value for us in reading what some of these earliest Christian writers had to say about the Holy Spirit. And the, uh, the first, the, really the earliest comprehensive work on the Holy Spirit is by St. Basil. It's called De Spiritu Sancto, which is just on the Holy Spirit. So a lot of really creative titles from these works, but those are the three main ones we'll be going for, Sinclair Ferguson, John Owen, and Basil the Great. I also have a list of recommended further reading at the end. If you want to dig deeper into any of these topics, those books are all a little shorter, a little more accessible. They're not massive seminary textbooks uh, if you want to dig deeper into some of the things we talk about. So a general overview of where we're going tonight. We'll start with some just core convictions about the Holy Spirit, some very fundamental theological truths that we believe about the Holy Spirit. Then we will open up our Bibles. We'll look at a particular passage of Scripture, what that has to say about the Holy Spirit, um, what Jesus himself had to teach about the Holy Spirit. And then we'll look at how we can apply that passage of Scripture to thinking about and to praying for our church today. So let's begin. Some core convictions about the Holy Spirit. Some of these will be really obvious. Some of them may not. Um, number one, the Holy Spirit is God. This is a line in the sand. The Trinity has always been a line in the sand for Christians. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God. Um, just like the Father is God, just like the Son is God. But the thing is, there's no Bible verse that explicitly states this for us. We can't go to the book of 2 Ephesians where it tells us all you know, how the Trinity works. We have to kind of piece this together. It's the clear teaching of Scripture as a whole. The Trinity is very clearly taught by Scripture, but it's never explicitly articulated in all the details. Um, St. Uh, Gregory has a really great passage where he just lists off all the Scripture references. There are a ton of Scripture references for the deity and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go through all of them right now because that's not generally something that we argue over today. But I do just want to look at one, and that's Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission. Jesus tells his disciples to baptize, and he says, baptize in the name, the singular name, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Basil points out that if Christ did not consider the Spirit equal to the Son and the Father, he wouldn't have included him in that baptismal formula. He wouldn't have grouped the Spirit with the Father and the Son <clears throat> if the Spirit was not God. Um, so that's just one place where we can see that the Spirit is clearly taught and implied by Scripture to be God. So if the Holy Spirit is God, there are some important implications of this. Uh, we, we don't want to just take that for granted. We want to think about, well, what does that mean if the Holy Spirit is God? First of all, this means the Spirit is eternal. Basil says the Spirit existed, He pre-existed, and He co-existed with the Father and the Son before the ages. So the Spirit was not invented at Pentecost. The Spirit was also not unveiled to the world for the first time at Pentecost. He was active in the creation of the world. If you read Genesis, the Holy Spirit is active in the creation account, making the heavens and the earth. He's also active all throughout the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament with an eye to the Holy Spirit, He's everywhere. You see Him you know, resting on people to signify that they are appropriate leaders. The Holy Spirit fills people so that they can accomplish great tasks. So the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament exclusive thing. Old Testament believers also had access to the Holy Spirit, just not in the exact same way that we do today. So the Spirit is eternal. This also means if the Spirit is God, the Spirit is worthy of our worship. Sometimes we get a little hesitant or a little squeamish about worshiping the Holy Spirit, but we should. If the Holy Spirit is God, then we should worship him. There's a great chapter that um, Basil has in his work on the Holy Spirit where he's listing off all the things that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit draws us to repentance. The Holy Spirit comforts us in our distress. All these wonderful things that the Spirit does. And he says, if the Spirit does all these things, how could we not worship him? How could we not give him glory and honor for what he does? Um, and so you might have noticed that many of the hymns that we sing end with some version of what's called the Gloria Patri, which is glory be to God the Father, 
Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. So we're giving glory and praise to the Spirit as we sing. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is God. Second, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. So if you are in Christ, the Spirit dwells within you. Taylor mentioned this this morning, Romans 8. The Spirit dwells within us. The Spirit empowers us to grow in our sanctification, in our personal holiness. The Spirit also helps us to read and understand Scripture. I'm about to clear my throat again. (coughs) And the Spirit is a comforter. The Spirit comforts us in times of distress. When we are so weak and worn down and weary that we don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit prays on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is our companion and our comforter in times of distress. And this can manifest in different ways for different people. Some people might just feel a wave of comforting emotions wash over them. I've heard some people describe that before. For me, one of the best ways that the Holy Spirit comforts me is through the body of Christ, actually. So a year ago, Mary Catherine and I went through a really difficult season, and the way that the Spirit most comforted us was through you all. People coming and bringing us meals and praying with us and sending us cards and calling us. Um, That's the work of the Spirit. That's not just us having a bunch of nice friends. We do have a bunch of nice friends. But we also have a bunch of Christian friends who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who are ministering to us. So when we're in times of distress and people are coming alongside us, we want to see the Holy Spirit in that. We want to recognize that that is that person being empowered by the Holy Spirit, by the spiritual gifts, to serve us and to minister to us in those times of distress as a comforter. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. The Spirit is uniquely linked to Christ. Karl Barth says that the Holy Spirit distinguishes himself from any other spirit by his absolute identity with the person and the work of Christ. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed in the Holy Spirit. The title Christ can be translated anointed one. Christ is anointed not in oil, but in the Holy Spirit. And Christ, this is going to be important later on, Christ performed his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Christ was healing people, that was him harnessing the power of the Holy Spirit. Ferguson says, from womb to tomb to throne, the Spirit was the constant companion of the Son. So we identify the Spirit by his close association with Christ. Spirit's uniquely linked to Christ. The Spirit is also uniquely linked to Scripture. This is super important. This is the big takeaway for tonight, is we want to associate the Holy Spirit with our Bible. R.C. Sproul says that the Scripture is the Spirit's book. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And the reason this is important is if we're not careful, our culture has a tendency to put the Holy Spirit and the Bible and doctrine on opposite ends of the spectrum. We like to think of like the head and the heart, right? We have like the head, like logic, science, the hard sciences, rationalism, And then we have the heart, we have our emotions, we have fine arts, we have spirituality and those kind of things. And that's a fine way to think about the world as a whole, but we don't want to think about our Christian faith always that way. Because the Holy Spirit is not just the heart or just the head. The Holy Spirit is both. The Holy Spirit is intimately connected with the writing of Scripture, but also with our reading, our understanding of Scripture. The spiritual gifts of teaching and preaching are how we learn more about the Holy Spirit. And as we're going to see when we go to uh, this passage from Christ, the the Spirit is the teacher. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of God's Word. So when we think about learning more about God, we should think of that as a Holy Spirit activity. That's not just the head and the Holy Spirit's over here dealing with how I feel. The Holy Spirit's all over everything that we do as Christians. The Spirit is not an alternative to doctrine in the careful study of Scripture. We can't say, ah, I'm not really into theology. I'm more of a Holy Spirit guy. You know, the Holy Spirit is all about theology. So if we want to be into the Holy Spirit, that means studying the Bible. Um, If we want to be led by the Spirit, we must first submit ourselves to the authority of the Spirit-inspired Word of God. So we should see the Spirit in the Scripture as inseparably linked. Finally, the Holy Spirit is uniquely linked to the church. We often talk about the Spirit in the role of individual lives. Spirit also works within the church as a whole. The Spirit's work right now in this era of time is building up Christ's church. And one of the ways he does this is by the giving of the spiritual gifts. 
The spiritual gifts are given to us for the express purpose of building up other people. John Owen says, The Spirit of God hath no other aim in granting these enlightening gifts, but that they should be used to the profit, advantage, and edification of others. Thomas Schreiner, who is a Southern Baptist theologian and wrote a great book on the spiritual gifts that I will recommend to you, <coughs> says, We also see from Ephesians that the gifts were not given so that we would marvel over our own abilities or covet the abilities of others. Nor were they given so that we would experience satisfaction and fulfillment in our lives. Still further, the gifts were not given so that we could realize our full self-potential. Here's the point. The gifts were given so that we would equip and strengthen other believers. And thus the gifts are others-centered, not self-centered. So that's the big takeaway about the spiritual gifts. They are others-centered, not self-centered. I'm not going to be able to say a whole lot else about the spiritual gifts because there's only so much time to talk tonight. But I highly encourage you to read Thomas Schreiner's book on the spiritual gifts. It's really excellent and really encouraging. Okay, those are some core convictions about the Holy Spirit. I want to briefly address a few cultural misconceptions. I don't want to dwell on this. I want to focus more on what we do believe about the Holy Spirit. But like I said, there's a lot of stuff out there about the Holy Spirit. So we want to be clear about what is and isn't biblical. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as our conscience. Now, why is that important? Why does that matter? It matters because unbelievers have a conscience. Unbelievers, in Romans 2, unbelievers have some general sense of right and wrong. So it's not that the Holy Spirit is our conscience. It's that the Holy Spirit refines our conscience. The Holy Spirit refines our sense of right and wrong as we grow in our sanctification and in our knowledge of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit helps us to have a more godly, a more biblical conscience, a more biblical sense of right and wrong. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of the fact that not only are we sinful, but that our sin is a problem. <coughs> Number two, the Holy Spirit can affect our emotions, but we must be careful to never assume that our emotions are always the work of the Spirit. I don't want to say that emotions are bad or wrong. Thank you, Don. Yes. Bring me some water. Um, so it's not that emotions are bad or wrong. Thank you so much. But we want to be careful about our emotions, right? The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things, and they're not talking about the organ in our body that's pumping blood, right? They're talking about how the way that we feel can be deceitful. So we want to be careful with our emotions. We don't want to just push them away and reject them and not think about them, but we do want to assess them in light of the Scripture, in light of prayer, in light of uh, advice and insight from wise, mature Christians in our lives. We want to test the way that we feel and see, is this the spirit or is this just my flesh? A kind of funny example, I had a good friend who um, was, uh, we were in college and he was just completely obsessed with his girlfriend. He just always, that's all he ever wanted to do was spend time with his girlfriend. And they're married now, so it worked out well for him. But I was talking to him at one point, and I was asking, we were talking about what we were going to do over the summer. And he had some really great internship opportunities that were kind of around the country. And I was asking him, you know, hey, what are you going to do this summer? You know, what are you thinking? What, what are you going to choose? And he said, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I really feel like what the Lord's leading me to do right now is to stay here and just really spend time with my girlfriend. And I was like, maybe that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to do, but maybe that's just what you want to do. You know, like I said, they got married, so maybe that was the Spirit's goal for their life, but we want to be careful anytime we're in a place where um, the Spirit seems to always be telling us to do exactly what we want to do. It's possible that we're just so sanctified that we're just right in step with God's will for our lives, but probably our flesh is leading us astray. So we just want to be careful about the way that we feel. We don't want to just blindly trust our emotions or attribute them to the work of the Spirit. Take a quick sip of water here. Okay, finally, I want to say a brief word <clears throat> about the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements. Whether or not you've even heard of these groups before, they have almost certainly had a subconscious influence on the way that we think about and talk about the Holy Spirit, especially in rural areas. These groups are very prominent in rural areas. They're very prominent in Dothan. So whether you know it or not, Pentecostals and Charismatics have probably influenced the way that you think about and talk about the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, it's a good influence. In some ways, it's not so good of an influence. So we just want to assess some of the, the things that we would associate with these groups. So historically, what sets these two groups apart, and they are different, um, 
is they place a large emphasis on emotional and spontaneous experiences of the Holy Spirit. One of the most common defining marks of this is what they would refer to as speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, miraculous healing. Um, this is not the same thing as the snake handlers, but this is kind of in that similar vein, you know, of it's, it's very um, emotionally driven, it's very spontaneous, it's very exciting. Um, you know, both of these movements, they emphasize prophecy, prophetic visions, dreams. Uh, now there's a difference between Pentecostals and Charismatics. Pentecostalism dates back to the, really the, the late 1800s. So it's, it's 1880s. It's really, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty new thing. Um, but Pentecostalism was kind of the first. It, it comes out of a lot of these revivals and this revivalism in the uh, Second Great Awakening. And in general, there's, there's some variety among Pentecostals, but we want to be careful. There are certain things that Pentecostals believe about the Trinity that we would, we would disagree with that are, are significant. So there are some significant issues we would have with um, Pentecostals, but that doesn't mean we should just write off everything that Pentecostalism says. Charismatics, on the other hand, are much later. They're kind of a, a later development. They really date back to the 1960s and the 1970s. They're very closely associated with contemporary worship music and the rise of contemporary worship music. So you don't really find a lot of charismatic churches that have more traditional music, and that's because they are really kind of wrapped up in the launching off of contemporary worship music in the late 1900s. Now, there's a ton of diversity among charismatics. There are charismatic Baptists, there are charismatic Presbyterians, Methodists, even like Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans, non-denominational. There's all kinds of charismatics. And there are what we would call evangelical charismatics, who are nearly indistinguishable from us. They would believe all the same things we believe about the Bible, about Christ, about sin, about salvation. You know, we are in lockstep with them on pretty much everything except for a couple of the spiritual gifts. And I just think it's important for us to note that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even though we disagree with them about how they might express things such as speaking in tongues and prophecies, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of the people that I most love and respect in this world are actually from the charismatic movement, even though I've never been a part of the charismatic movement and I would not call myself a charismatic. Some of my greatest influences in worship, some of the greatest pastors and theologians that I have learned from are evangelical charismatics. And I've really benefited from studying their perspective on the Holy Spirit and their perspective on Christianity in general. Um, so in general, when we're thinking about these groups, when we're thinking about really anyone, but especially Charismatics and Pentecostals, we want to judge them based on how the substance of what they say and what they do aligns with Scripture. We don't want to just judge based on the label, just like we don't want to just give a Baptist a pass and assume that he's, he's saying the right thing, right? We want to test it against the word of Scripture. So that's how we want to uh, interact with the Charismatic and Pentecostal movements. Now that's all I'm going to say about this. I'm not going to get into speaking in tongues. I'm not going to get into prophecy and visions. I know that may be a little disappointing. Maybe it seems like a cop-out. But the reason why is because I think, unfortunately, the debates over these particular spiritual gifts can totally derail conversations about the Holy Spirit. It totally dominates the discussions that we have about the Spirit. And so what we end up with are Charismatic and Pentecostals who often, not always, but often their perspective of the Holy Spirit is just those things. It's just prophecy, tongues, gifts, visions. Um, there's, there's, no, there's not a more robust understanding of the Holy Spirit. And then you have people like myself who my theology of the Holy Spirit was all about what I did not believe about the Holy Spirit. I could say, well, I don't believe this, I don't believe that, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. But I couldn't have actually told you anything that I did believe about the Holy Spirit. So that's what I want to focus on tonight. What we can all agree is the clear teaching of Scripture when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So let's open up our Bibles now. We're going to go to John chapter 14. And what I want to look at here is a particular passage. This is not a comprehensive look at everything the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, of course. This is not the entire role of the Holy Spirit, but this is a particular element of the Holy Spirit that I think is neglected, and that is the role of the Spirit not just in the life of the individual, but in the life of the church as a whole. As Taylor often emphasizes, we are not saved to be individual Christians. We're saved to be a part of the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit has important ways in which he's going to work in the context of the institution of the church. So we want to look at this. And this is one of those great opportunities where we can answer a theological question by just saying, what did Jesus say about this? Because Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit here. So we'll be in John chapter 14. Christ is talking to the disciples. 
He's letting them know he's about to leave. I'm leaving sooner than you're expecting. But don't worry, because when I'm gone, the Father is going to send another one like me. And this is, again, the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Christ refers to the Spirit as someone like himself. So the Father is going to send another one like me, the Holy Spirit. Here's what he's going to do. Here's what you can expect from the Holy Spirit. Here's how he's going to work while I'm away. So we start in verse uh, 15, John 14, 15. And we want to make note of what Christ calls the Holy Spirit. So he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there at the end, he's talking about that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But let's look at these two names. The Spirit of Truth. Just make a note of that. That's a recurring name for the Holy Spirit. God is not a God of confusion. Neither is the Spirit of God a Spirit of confusion. The Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and truth, knowledge, and understanding. But the really important name here is Helper. He says, I will send another Helper. It's capital H for me. Some of your translations may say Comforter. Some of them may say Counselor. Some will just say paraclete, which isn't really an English word that we use. Um, But they're all kind of getting at different aspects of this word, and this is where it's important for us to go back and look at what was the original Greek word that John wrote there. And what's the, uh, the connotations, the implications of that word? Now, I don't read a lick of Greek, so if you don't read Greek either, we're all in the same boat. We can rely on other people that do uh, read Greek. But the word there is parakletos. Parakletos is the word for helper. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson points out that it's generally recognized today among scholars that the word parakletos, helper, is a good translation, but it was a particular kind of helper. It wasn't just any old helper. It was a helper in a legal courtroom scenario. So essentially... I'm on trial, and I make a statement. I say, I didn't do it. And then I bring in the parakletos, my helper, is going to come help me by testifying to the truth of what I have just said. So I say, I didn't do it. The paraclete comes in and says, I support him. Um, He didn't do it. Here's my witness. He was with me, so he couldn't have done it. I'm testifying to the truth of what he has said about himself. That's how the Spirit is helping me out. And so, as we'll see in a moment... Christ refers to the Spirit as the helper, in large part because the helper is helping Christ. Sinclair Ferguson refers to the Spirit here as the witness advocate. He's a witness advocating for the claims of Christ. And if we think about it, we can see that the Spirit, even as Christ is saying this, the Spirit has already been doing that in Christ's life. The Spirit testifies and advocates for Christ in the Old Testament when he inspires the prophets that foretold the coming of Christ. The Holy Spirit also testified to Christ all throughout his earthly ministry. When John the Baptist baptized Christ, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And John, it's not clear if everyone saw the Holy Spirit, but John saw the Holy Spirit. And when he saw the Holy Spirit, he knew that Christ was who he said he was. He had already identified Christ as the Messiah, but seeing the Holy Spirit was that further testament to who Christ was and the identity of Christ. Likewise, I mentioned earlier, when Christ performed miracles, he did that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where we want to think about why Christ performed miracles. When Christ healed people, it wasn't just out of compassion. It wasn't just out of having mercy, although that was certainly a big part of it. He also performed these miracles as a sign that he was who he said he was. Uh, If you look especially in the Gospel of John, whenever Christ performs a miracle, it's almost always accompanied by some sort of text that says something along the lines of, When they saw the miracle, the sign, they believed. So the Holy Spirit performs these miracles to prove to people Christ has said he's the Son of God, and look what he just did. He really is the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit is the witness advocate for Christ. Okay, moving on to John 14, verse 25. Um, He kind of peppers in thoughts about the Holy Spirit throughout this, so we're going to skip around a bit. John 14, 25. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So two things to note here. First, he calls him the Helper again. 
says that the Father will send him in my name. But the two big takeaways, first, we want to associate the Holy Spirit's, uh, we want to look at the Holy Spirit's association with teaching. The Holy Spirit is not just going to make you feel good. He's not just going to send a bunch of good vibes. He's going to teach you about God. He's going to teach you all things. And secondly, and this is really cool, it's really subtle, I had always missed it until one of my professors pointed this out to us. He says, I will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Have you ever thought about how when the disciples wrote their Gospels, how did they remember what Christ said? How did they remember with pretty remarkable accuracy what Christ preached in the Sermon on the Mount? If you ask me right now to quote a single line from Taylor's sermon this morning, and it was a wonderful sermon, I probably couldn't do it, right? But the disciples, decades later, are writing down what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is how they did it. The Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance all that Christ had said to them. So it's just a really cool, subtle thing there where we're seeing that the Holy Spirit, even in Christ's mind, the Holy Spirit is going to be involved in the writing of Scripture. Um, okay, moving on to John 15, 26 through 27. He's talking about the Holy Spirit again. He says, But when the Helper comes, when the Witness Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So this is that same thing I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit is here as the Helper. Who, Yes, he helps us, but really what this is getting at is he's helping Christ by testifying to the truth of who Christ is, and by building up Christ's church. Uh, and again, the Holy Spirit is associated here as the spirit of truth. Okay, this next passage is going to have a lot in it. So let's go to John 16, verses, just a few verses down. Verse 4 is where we'll start. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there's a ton here about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Spirit will convict the world of sin. If someone is going to repent of their sin, if they're going to become saved, they're going to repent of their sin, trust in Christ, they need to recognize that their sin is a serious issue, right? We, we know this. We know friends who are unbelievers. They know that they're sinful. They know, ah, yeah, I'm not perfect. But they don't get how big of a problem it is. They're not going to repent of their sin unless the Spirit convicts them of the fact that they have sinned against a holy God, right? So we need the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sin if they're going to repent and if they're going to be saved. And this recognition comes from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And here's where we want to be careful about what Christ is saying to everyone and what he's saying to the disciples in particular. Earlier he said, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now Christ didn't say anything to me personally, right? He said stuff to the disciples. So he's reminding them of what they've said. Um, and it's the same kind of thing here. Um, Jesus, there were other things he says. Uh, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's more that I'd like to teach you, but you're just not in the right headspace for me to tell it to you right now. But the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. And this, again, is getting at the Holy Spirit is going to inspire additional books of Scripture after this one. Like we have, you know, Ephesians, all the things that Paul wrote. We have First and Second Peter. Um, the Holy Spirit's going to inspire um, the, the words of Scripture and guide us into all truth by doing that. However, and this is really important, the Holy Spirit will not contradict Christ or Scripture. He says he will not speak on his own authority. In that survey on theology that Taylor always mentions, where they, they polled a bunch of evangelicals about what they believe, 
there was a disturbingly high number of evangelical Christians that said that the Holy Spirit could tell them something that contradicted Scripture and that they should trust the Holy Spirit over the Bible. That is not true. That is not, first of all, as we said earlier, this is the Spirit's book. So this is the Holy Spirit. So he's contradicting himself if he contradicts the Bible. And the Bible makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit does not come and speak of his own authority. He comes by the authority of Christ to glorify Christ and to point us to Christ. So like I said, point three, the Spirit will glorify Christ. He does not speak of his own authority, but he will glorify Christ in all that he does. The Spirit will never contradict Christ or Scripture. John Calvin says, The Spirit that introduces any doctrine or invention apart from the gospel of grace is a deceiving spirit and not the Spirit of Christ. In 1 John, uh, which we've been going through, which has been a wonderful series, I've really loved it. 1 John 4, which Taylor is going to preach on soon, uh, John points out, here's how we can test if something really is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always testify to Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to affirm what Christ has said, and John says what the disciples had already said about Christ. So if we, if we interact with something that is, we think it's the Holy Spirit, someone claims it's the Holy Spirit, if its ultimate goal is anything other than glorifying Christ and building up his church, then it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not here to make us a bunch of money or advance a political cause or sow discord and distrust among Christians. The Holy Spirit is here to glorify Christ and edify, encourage, and build up his church. So that's how we can assess any claim of the Spirit's work, whether it's a Pentecostal or a Charismatic or a Baptist or a Catholic. Um, if they are claiming to be ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, but their goal is not to glorify Christ, that's not the Holy Spirit's work. Okay, so that's what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit here. <clears throat> Let's think about how we can apply these, uh, this material on the Holy Spirit to thinking about our church, thinking about First Baptist Dothan, and how can we pray for First Baptist Dothan. Number one, we want to think about the Spirit's role in evangelism. When we share the gospel, we should do so with an awareness of the Spirit's role in salvation. No one will be saved without the work of the Spirit on their heart. We cannot will people into salvation. We cannot will ourselves into salvation. We must have the power of the Holy Spirit to assist us there. Calvin says it follows that the outward preaching will be vain and useless if not accompanied by the inward teaching of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how eloquent we are when we present the gospel. If the Holy Spirit is not working in that person's heart, they're not going to repent. They're not going to truly turn to Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know this to be true. Think about families. I know there are families in this church, uh, maybe it's your own family, where there are two kids who are about the same age. They grow up in the church. They go to the same worship service. They hear the same gospel presentation. They hear the same ABC presentation at VBS each year. Same youth minister, same Sunday school class, same small group. One child is a Christian, one child's not. What happened there? It's not that the parents failed. It's not that the youth minister or the pastor or the children's minister failed. It's that the Holy Spirit convicted one child of their sin, and the Holy Spirit has not yet convicted the other child of their sin. But there might. There is still hope that the Holy Spirit would convict, because we know that the Holy Spirit works in people's lives. So when we think about people in our family, whether it's a child or a parent or a brother or sister um, or a close friend who is not saved, we should feel sorrow over that. We should grieve over that. But we should never feel ashamed over that. It's not, our, it's not up to us to save people. It's up to us to present the gospel and to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin. So we should pray that the Spirit would change the hearts of the unbelievers in our lives. We should pray that the Spirit will convict their hearts of the reality and the consequences of their sin. And we should take comfort in the fact that the efficacy of our evangelism rests in the Spirit, not in our own ability to be persuasive. So we don't have to think, oh, I'm not very well spoken, or oh, I haven't been a Christian for very long, or oh, I didn't go to seminary, I don't really know very much about theology. If we can articulate the gospel, then we can present the gospel to someone and the Spirit can convict them of their sin and they can be saved. Taylor always tells this story, and I think it's, I think it's a pastor around here, I'm forgetting who it is, and he always says that he was converted by the worst gospel presentation he'd ever heard. He was in college, and he had a friend that was involved in some campus ministry, and the friend said, hey, they're, they're making us read these gospel tracts to people, so will you go to lunch with me, and I'll read this tract to you. So they go to the fast food restaurant, the guy's just sitting there, stone-faced, reading it, he's not invested in it at all, 
and the other guy is just totally taken with it. And the Spirit convicts him of his sin, and he's saved by this horrible gospel presentation. <laughs> because salvation ultimately belongs to God, right? It's not a work of man, it's a work of God, and we are saved. So we can preach the gospel with boldness and with confidence, because we know that the ultimate power behind our evangelism comes from God and not from man. So we should take comfort in the Spirit's role in our evangelism. Number two, we want to think about the Spirit's work in our discipleship. So the Spirit, if we think about the Spirit getting us in the church by convicting, of us, uh, convicting us of our sin and calling us into the church, the Spirit also is our constant companion as we grow in our faith. The Spirit is the chief teacher in the church. We should see Sunday school or community group hour as a Spirit-filled hour. Right? We don't always associate the Holy Spirit with Sunday school, but we should. Think about what's happening. Let's just think about like Melanie's class, right? So Melanie's teaching. She's exercising a spiritual gift, the spiritual gift of teaching. The Spirit has empowered her to teach. They're talking about the Spirit's book, the book that the Spirit has inspired. Um, she's sharing by her spiritual gift, Spirit-given insights into the Spirit-inspired Word. And if people are getting it, if it's clicking, if they're understanding it, that's the work of the Spirit in their hearts. So the Holy Spirit is all over Sunday school hour, right? Um, the Holy Spirit uh, has empowered the teachers in order to edify and build up our church. Uh, the scripture teaches us through the inspiration and illumination of scripture by uh, opening our, our eyes to see the truth of scripture. As I said earlier, we should associate the Spirit so closely with scripture. We shouldn't put these people on opposite ends of the spectrum. They are inseparably linked to each other. If we are in Christ and the Spirit dwells within us, then we will ultimately grow in our knowledge of God, in our sanctification, in our personal holiness, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Herman Bovink, who is a Dutch theologian, he's one of my absolute favorites that I have read, um, he talks about the Christian life as like planting a seed. It's not like we become a Christian and boom, we're just, you know, totally different, right? It's like planting a seed, and the seed needs to be nurtured and watered. The seed needs to grow gradually over time. He says the new life in Christ just like all natural life, must be nourished and strengthened. And this is possible only in communion with Christ, in the Holy Spirit, and through the word of Scripture. Enlightened by the Spirit, believers gain a new knowledge of faith. The gospel is the food of faith and must be known to be nourishment. And this is great, these last two lines. Salvation that is not known and enjoyed is no salvation. God saves by causing himself to be known and enjoyed in Christ. So we want to think about our Christian life not as a one-time thing where we turn around, but as a seed that's planted and watered and sustained and grows by the power of the Holy Spirit, especially in the context of the church. Okay, uh, I certainly can't pass up an opportunity to talk a little bit about worship um, here. I do have a few thoughts about worship. Um, and the Holy Spirit, we generally do associate the Holy Spirit with worship, right? That's actually something we can attribute to the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. They really hammer the role of the Holy Spirit in worship and especially in music. Um, St. Gregory says, it is the Spirit in whom we worship and through whom we pray. So like I said, we often associate the Spirit in corporate worship primarily with music, with emotions, with spontaneity, and, uh, and often prayer. And this is one of the ways in which we're influenced by the charismatic and Pentecostal movements of the 20th century. Now, we should associate the Holy Spirit with music. Ephesians 5 tells us to be filled with the Spirit as we sing. So it's not wrong to associate the Holy Spirit with music, but we shouldn't exclusively associate the Holy Spirit with music. We should also, and perhaps primarily, we should associate the Spirit in worship with the reading and the preaching of the Word. Thomas Schreiner points out, that uh, with the spiritual gifts, musical leadership is never listed. Like, musical ability is great. It's obviously a gift from God that comes down to us. But it's never listed as a particular spiritual gift that's meant for the building up and the edification of the church. But preaching is. Teaching is. The Word of God is clearly meant for our edification. So we should associate the Spirit with music, but maybe even more, we should associate the Spirit with the preaching and the reading and the praying of God's Word. And this, uh, this shift in mindset has made a huge difference for me in the way that I think about getting ready to come to our worship service. And one of the elements that I now most eagerly anticipate is the reading of the Word. When we have someone just 
read the Bible. And I know that it's a bit awkward sometimes. Like sometimes the reading's a little bit too long or someone's stumbling over their words or the pronunciation. I know it's not like the most compelling, the most um, flashy part of the worship service. But it is one of the single most important things that we can do as Christians to actually read the Bible together. It's something that evangelicals historically, we've not done a very good job of it in the last 20, 30 years. We've really got to a place where our worship services are just singing and preaching, right? And those are two good things. But Paul tells us that we should devote ourselves to the public reading of the word. Inevitably, there will be a Sunday where the music falls flat, where Taylor kind of misses the mark with his sermon. But we know that the word of God will never return empty. And so if we fill our service with the reading of God's word, if we allow the word of God to speak for itself without any comment on our behalf, there's a lot of power in that. And that's one of the most important things we can do when we worship. The Holy Spirit speaks clearly and directly to us when we read the word and allow it to speak for itself. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, I, I really just, I want to hear a word from the Holy Spirit. Well, he's given us a lot of words right here, right? The Holy Spirit can still speak to us, sure, but he's already said quite a bit, so maybe we should start here with what the Holy Spirit has said, right? These are a lot of words that the Holy Spirit has given us. Now, the danger in what I have said tonight and the way that I have approached this topic tonight is that we become, and this is how we're already kind of wired, we become a lot of Stoics, and we just neglect emotion entirely, and we say, oh, emotion in worship, that's bad. It's bad to put your hands up in the air. You know, like, we need to be serious, and we need to just study the Bible. We don't need to feel emotional at all. And that is not at all what I'm saying. It's not that we want to neglect or ignore our emotions, and it's not that we don't want to associate the Holy Spirit with music. Like I said, Ephesians 5, we should be filled with the Spirit, filled with joy. He actually compares it in that sentence to being drunk. He says, don't be filled with, with alcohol, be filled with the Holy Spirit. R respond that way because you're filled with joy about the Holy Spirit, not because you're intoxicated. Um, so we should feel emotional when we sing and when we worship. And I would say, and I'll put myself at the front of the line here, we as evangelicals generally need to do a better job of expressing our emotions in worship. And this is something that I think we can learn from our uh, evangelical charismatic brothers and sisters about how to be genuinely emotional and expressive in worship in a way that's true to us and in a way that glorifies God. Um, it's not that we don't want to have emotions. It's that we want to ensure that our emotions are grounded in a response to biblical truth and not a response to something worldly. We have been, humanity has been perfecting the art of music for hundreds, thousands of years so that it will generate an emotional response. So we shouldn't be surprised if the music is going well that we feel emotional. We just want to make sure that we're not feeling emotional just because of the music. We want to be feeling emotional because of some truth about who God is or what he's done. And we want the music to come alongside that and complement that. But we never want that to be the main thing that we're engaging with. Bob Coughlin, who is my hero, he is an uh, evangelical charismatic worship leader. He's written a lot of great books on worship. Talking about this, he says, It's important that we know what our aim is. Our aim is not to just raise people's hands or get people's feet moving. Our aim is to respond to God naturally in ways that point to his glory and express our satisfaction in him. So if we can read the Bible, if we can talk about the gospel, if we can sing in Christ alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. If we can sing that and not feel emotional at all, then something's wrong. You know, like that's an incredible biblical truth. We should feel emotional when we sing those things. So we want to feel emotions. We just want to make sure that they're in response to biblical truth. Okay, finally, one of the things that I have most benefited from over the past year in growing in my knowledge and understanding of the Holy Spirit is it's given focus and specificity to my prayer life. It's given me specific things that I can pray for and specific ways that I can pray for things. Um, because I'm now more aware of what the Holy Spirit does and what the Holy Spirit can do. So number one, we want to pray that the Holy Spirit will convict the hearts of unbelievers in our lives. We want to share the gospel with our loved ones who do not know Christ, but the most important thing we can do for them is to pray for them. We want to pray for them before we share the gospel with them. And then we can share the gospel with confidence because we know, as I said, salvation belongs to God. The power in our evangelism to them comes from the Holy Spirit. So we want to pray that the Spirit will convict the hearts of unbelievers of their sin. We want to pray that the Spirit will give wisdom 
and discernment to our church leadership. This is something that I pray often for, for Taylor, for Nick, for many of the, the lay leaders in our church who are, are making decisions about the future of the church and the direction that we're going to go, how we're going to allocate our God-given resources. We want to pray that the Spirit would give them wisdom and discernment about how they make those decisions. Um, thinking about Sunday mornings, one of the things that I pray for is that the Spirit will be at work during community group hour, empowering the teachers and enlightening the listeners. And this isn't just for the adult community groups. This is for the children as well. We don't want to just pray for Mike and Melanie and Nick. We want to pray for Cindy. We want to pray for the, the children's Sunday school volunteers. We want to pray for those children that even, however possible at their age, whatever they're mentally capable of, at their phase, that the Holy Spirit would already be softening their hearts and preparing them, making them receptive to the Word of God as it's taught faithfully each week on Sunday mornings. Finally, thinking about the worship service, a phrase that I have started using in my prayers, and I think I actually said it last Sunday in the opening prayer, is I've been praying that the Spirit will fill our hearts with joy and our minds with wisdom as we worship. We want to be growing in knowledge and in truth, and we want to be responding to that knowledge and truth with appropriate emotions. We want to respond to the truth of the Spirit-given Word with Spirit-fueled emotions. So those are some ways that we can pray about the Holy Spirit. Um, I finished a little bit early, so I'll go through this recommended reading list here. Um, the first, the Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. Like I said, general overview. If you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, he's got some particularly good stuff about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. This is a great book. It's just called The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. It's written in modern English. You can get it on Amazon. It's a great general overview of the Holy Spirit. The number one book I would recommend here is Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter by Thomas Schreiner. He's a Southern Baptist pastor. Nick actually went to his church for a little while. He's written a lot of great things, but this book is particularly good. I think it's very easy to read. It's short. It's very practical. He talks about all the spiritual gifts. He talks about how we should think about the spiritual gifts. And he engages with some of those controversies over speaking in tongues, the charismatic movements. I think he comes to some really good biblical conclusions about those things. And the last one I'll recommend is The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bovink. This is an incredible book. Um, Bovink wrote this massive systematic theology that seminary students use. We're using it in my seminary. It's like four volumes. Each one is hundreds, thousands of pages long. And then he realized, no one's going to read this book. Like, it's too long. You know, other than seminary students, no one's going to read this. So I'm going to condense this into a short book that's accessible, that people will actually be able to read. It covers all kinds of theological topics. It's just kind of a general overview of theology. And he's got a lot of great stuff about how that theology should affect the way that we live our lives. So that's The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bobbing. Okay, let me close us in prayer, and then we can go on our way. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would confirm and solidify any truth that we have heard tonight about you. I pray that you would help us to all be more aware of your work in our lives and help us to find assurance in your consistent presence throughout the mundane routines of each day. We pray that you would give comfort to those who are afflicted, wisdom to those who are in leadership, and conviction of sin to those who need repentance. We pray all this in the name of Christ, our perfect mediator. Amen.